Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. From hijackings to plane crashes and interviewing some of the biggest stars in the world, from your Brad Pitts to your Audra McDonald's to your Tom Cruises, Chris Fahey, live from New York, is our guest today on Take Fountain. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely to see you. So you're a senior talent producer on the Tamron Hall Show, which is a talk show out of New York. Um, it doesn't go to air in Australia from, uh, from what I know. Um, but your career didn't start as a, as a talent producer. I mean, you started with hard news, right? Yeah, I, um, I went to college at uh, Fordham University in the Bronx, New York, and we had our own 50,000-watt radio station, which is a big radio station, so we had great carriage. And um, I was the news director by my third year, and I went out and covered everything from, you know, the changing of a street light to the, uh, you know, putting a street light on a busy, busy street at Rockefeller Plaza, which everybody knows, to uh, covering the Yankees winning the World Series and getting a ticker tape parade, you know, uh, downtown in downtown Manhattan. So we did everything. And along the way, I always read the arts and leisure section of the Times first on Sundays and on weekdays. I was always drawn to the arts. I'm a big reader. So that to me was the goal. To be honest, I always wanted to meet the Beatles. So this was the way I was going to get closest enough to meet the Beatles. And in, in the end, I met Paul, George and Ringo. You did meet not John. Uh, I met all but John, who was my chief love. You know, he was killed while I was in college and I ended up writing his obituary. It was the saddest day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you had anything to do with Paul McCartney in recent years? Um, I've interviewed him in recent years. Um, I, I actually ran into him at a restaurant uh, one night over uh, the Christmas holiday a couple of years ago in New York. He was, uh, his wife was carrying, Nancy was carrying a big umbrella and as we walked past, I said to my friend, uh, an older gentleman, oh, my God, that's Paul McCartney. But we didn't bother him. We let him go. Um, I actually rode up in an elevator with him at Rockefeller Center at one point and got to tell him it was just the two of us, no security guards or anything, and got to tell him that uh, I had seen him Wings Over America in 76 at Madison Square Garden with Linda and interviewed him a couple of times with Linda and just thank him you know, for his career. And I also did manage to tell him how much I miss John. And he said he missed him too. Oh, that's so, 
such an opportunity. A, um, a guy I know had a very funny experience here. Uh, he got into an elevator and there was a very familiar face. And he was he was new to LA, and and he honestly thought that it, it was somebody that he'd known in his past, and uh, and that it you know had been a friend of his, but he couldn't for the life of him remember the name. And when he got out of the elevator, he realised it was Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So she was a friend indeed, right? <laughs> she was in fact a friend. Exactly, right? funny. I think the the funniest thing, you know, to be in a position like you're in because you know as the talent producer a talent booker books the stars to go on the various shows the talent producer can wind up doing the interviews or at least writing writing the questions right um but you have different exposure to different types of of stars um when you first started your job was that was it for people is that where you first started um no i started in writing news um, I wrote for uh, WPIX TV in New York. I wrote, uh, you know, it was during the uh, late 80s and early 90s, a time of plane crashes and hijackings. And it was really there was a, it was very quiet in the beginning until, you know, all the trouble started in the Middle East. So um, but but again, I always tended my joy, my pleasure. You know, my dessert was in the in the arts and entertainment. So I gravitated toward that. I don't think certainly when I started I didn't think that I would necessarily be able to spend my life doing that. Although the first story I wrote in college was about uh, the trouble that Sid Vicious was in from the Sex Pistols. And then, of course, he killed his girlfriend and died. So those, that was my very first story to write. But, um, you know, as a, as a booker and a producer, you spend a lot of time begging, begging people to please give them your give us your star and let them talk to our talent. And, who are, you know, sometimes if I do a red carpet, if I do a movie arrival or um, arrivals, even at a, and I did a U2 concert one year um, in uh, in Las Vegas when they released the pop album. I'm a huge U2 fan. I'm Irish. And that was great fun, you know. But then I get to do the interviews myself. Oftentimes you get to do pre-interviews with people. So while I never met John, I have talked to Julian Lennon on the phone and got to share my love for his father and ask him some questions. So, yeah, you do kind of everything. Was there a moment in your in your career where you could go either one way or the other, where it was either okay, I'm going to go with news, or I'm going to go with arts and entertainment? Was there was can you remember yeah. that moment? Yeah, I was at CBS for ten years, and while I was there, um, I came in. It was just after Lucille Ball died, and I had loved Lucy. I would love to have met her, but I didn't get to. And I came in, and I was doing well and succeeding. And they pulled me in and said, you know we really think you should go hard news. This is a hard news network and there'd be more opportunities for you here. And I, I said, give me a day to think about it. And I thought about it and my heart just was, wasn't in it as much, you know? Um, I don't think I made a mistake. I mean, I've met everyone but John Lennon really, you know, and I've gotten to do some pretty great things along the way with people like Madonna. And I, I had great conversations with Mick Jagger and things like that. So yeah, I'm glad I went the way I did. I mean, and hard news can be so sad. I mean, I would have a hard time covering, even covering COVID through the Broadway scene is so sad. I mean, there's a lot more joy at the Oscars or the Grammys or the Emmys or, you know, just being the first to see, you know, a movie in the whole country. That's great yeah. fun. Speaking, uh, just going back a little bit, you mentioned I Love Lucy and news out this week that Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are going to be the Lucy and Desi. What do you think of that casting? Right. 
I think Nicole Kidman can do anything. My first thought was that Javier Bardem is too tall to play Desi. Don't you think? Yeah. Desi, Desi was a genius, I mean, but a little guy. And, I, you know, Lucy was taller. I thought Desi had that movie star skin. And yeah, and I just don't, I just don't see that same, that same look. But you know, it depends at what age they're going to be playing them as well. Uh, because and let's I, face it, makeup and prosthetics. Yeah, they can do a lot with makeup and prosthetics. Like what they did with Gary yeah. Oldman, you know, in right. Which, right? I mean, that was just, just amazing. Right, and uh, certainly Nicole is so long and lean. She could play Lucy. I feel bad for Deborah Messing because she had earlier been cast and she says she's going to give it a run to try to get it. You know, she's a natural redhead and she really wanted to play Lucy. She, you know, she dressed up as Lucy on Will and Grace and had really hoped to take that part. So she was disappointed. You must have heard a lot over the years about the disappointments that go on and the, the vaccine stuff. Can you think of a story where, where something like that, you know, came into your orbit? Well, oftentimes when you talk to celebrities, you'll hear them talk about how, um, you know, roles they were up for and didn't get or parts they might have had and didn't pan out or things they didn't go for and maybe should have. Um, I remember interviewing Stephen Stills once, you know, from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, yeah. a band I loved. And uh, he was great friends with Neil Young. And I was interviewing David and Stephen and um, Nash, Graham Nash. And Stephen told me that he had been up to be one of the monkeys. You know, hey, hey, it's the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. And he had a rehearsal and he couldn't get out of it. So he uh, ended up sending his roommate at the time, a guy named Peter Tork. No. And that's how Peter Tork became a monkey. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I love that story. I had never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and yet Stephen does not seem to have the demeanor to be a monkey. He's not that goofy. He's always been more serious, you know? So, uh, but that was something. And, um, you know, they often will talk jokingly about their flops, you know, ones they probably should have skipped. Right. But, um, you know, yeah. I mean, there's always stories. There's a lot of that that goes on. So you, yeah. you got very close to Madonna, if not in bed with her. I'm sorry to use that. No. <laughs> uh, no, she's in too great shape. <laughs> her publicist, uh, the woman who used to be her publicist for years and years, Madonna looked at her as a surrogate mother, as a wonderful woman named Liz Rosenberg. And Liz knew she could trust me and work with me and often gave me scoops. You know, Madonna's going to open the MTV Awards. Madonna, when she fell off her horse that time, which really ended her marriage to Guy Ritchie, um, Liz gave us the story first at Access Hollywood and we went with it and shared it with USA Today. When um, Madonna and her daughter Lourdes, we're starting a clothing line. Liz said to me, bring your daughter with me. I have a daughter who's now 23, but at the time was about 11 and was kind of shy at that time and didn't love to go when mom went to work. But I said, come on, it's Madonna. You can go. And uh, so she did. <laughs> I thought, come she on, did. Madonna. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you plenty of stories about that. I took her to the Mamma Mia premiere and both both Rita Wilson, who produced the show, the film, and uh, Meryl Streep kind of, kind of tried to engage her in how much she enjoyed the movie. And she was reading a book on the premiere line. She wasn't really up to chatting. She was busy. She's very studious. She's lightened up. Anyway, so I brought her and, and they, Lourdes and Madonna actually picked out a, a, an outfit for Material Girl. 
and she was um, she was dressed up, and it was really such a thrill and a treat. And I have to say, Lourdes was very well raised. I know she's very close to Madonna, and what a nice kid she was. She was a couple of years older than my daughter, dating Timothy Chalamet at the time. I later found out the young actor, um, and uh, they they she was just very. They were very kind, and we still have the outfit, of course. Yes, it must be incredibly difficult because you get into this because you you want to sing or act or you know do all of those things and and although you have an understanding that you have a responsibility to your fans and so on there's so much there's so much information that people get their hands on um now more than ever you know um although the there are some i would have to there there are some people who manage to keep their lives quiet when they want to you know, you have to admit that. I mean, we don't really know much about what kind of a parent Sharon Stone is or, um, you know, in terms of, of Nicole Kidman's relationship with her two daughters, we only know what she tells us. Yeah. I mean, everybody has good times and bad times. I'm a single parent. I know that with their kids. But, um, you know, some people tend, like Madonna, tend to lay it all on the line and run videos of their kids singing and dancing and everything else. And not everybody does that. So you do have some control. Sometimes you don't, but you can if you if you choose to. We don't know much about Julianne Moore. Right. She may appear kind of uninteresting, not because she's a bad actress. She's a wonderful actress, but because she doesn't post pictures of her kids all day long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually shot a, a volunteer event with her and, um, and a, a basketball player in New York around Thanksgiving one time. And she was lovely and perf perfectly happy to talk to me um, and talk about her involvement in the charity. And I could shoot her bagging, uh, you know, uh, groceries. But she asked me not to shoot her children, which, of course, I was totally fine with. Yeah, yeah. So you, it's a matter of how much they want to give. Looking, looking over your career, the way the information comes into your hands now or, or um into all of our lives now via social media. Do you have feelings about that? Do you think it's better or worse than it used to be? Or do you think the access is too much? Um, I certainly don't understand why anyone would do every, anything in public or it, let alone even pick their nose because there are cameras everywhere. And it, it constantly amazes me when you hear somebody's OD'd, like there was somebody who OD'd just yesterday, a 24-year-old megazillionaire son of Stephanie Seymour. And you know somebody's going to have that on camera because every hotel, every hallway, everything has a camera in it. So I think it's gotten much more difficult. I'll tell you, there was a time just before the internet exploded, we would be at Rockefeller Plaza at Access Hollywood and literally get a phone call from a woman named Angelina Jolie. And she would be telling us that she was going to be at Saks shopping if we wanted to shoot some video. So that's how... You know, they were interested in controlling. That was before she had all the kids. I think she just had one. Um, but, you know, they can control it like that by telling you where to go and what to shoot. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who do a lot of things privately and, and aren't all over the place. But other people like mm -hmm. to live out loud. Remember what Warren Beatty said to Madonna in the movie, the black and white movie, Truth or Dare? He said, you don't even want to live if there are cameras on you. You know? Well, if, if I, I said to a friend yesterday, she, she was Skyping me from Australia. She said, I'm about to go and cook dinner. I said, take a photo or it didn't happen. Exactly. Even my kid will send me pictures of her and the ribs she and her boyfriend are sharing. And I'm kind of like, I'd rather see your face than what you're having for dinner, you know? I know. I know. This is Take Fountain with Ella James.
Um, You mentioned Broadway briefly. You are in New York. What's your experience been of COVID firstly? And then I want to talk to you about your Broadway experiences. Well, I've been lucky, so blessed to be in New York and to have covered Broadway for over 30, 35 years. I mean, I've pretty much seen everything. And that's two great seats, you know, before a show opens generally. I've seen a lot of performers kind of grow up on the stage. I saw three shows the week that Broadway closed, the week before they closed. I saw six, which was great. I saw um, The Girl from the North Country, which was a show based on um, Bob Dylan's music. And I saw um, uh, Little Pill, Jagged Little Pill, based on the Alanis Morissette. Right. And only did I find out afterward that backstage, two of the three plays were absolutely full of COVID-stricken people, um, that everybody was getting sick. Um, We did not interact with the stars. They weren't collecting money after the shows or anything, as they often will be. But um, just to think that the whole theater could have potentially been exposed to that is kind of disturbing. You know, it seems very disingenuous and and kind of careless, you know, in a country where now in L.A., one out of every three people has COVID. And they say 60 percent of the cases of COVID have have been up since Election Day, November 3rd. That's pretty disturbing, you know. Um, but I I will tell you one story that really hit me. There was a guy who was the original costumer for, um, Wicked and very talented man. And then he moved on and he was the costumer for, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And one of the last things he did, I guess, in February of last year was he did the costumes for, uh, the one time only performance with Aaron Sorkin in attendance and Ed Harris was in the lead of To Kill a Mockingbird at Madison Square Garden, 20,000 uh, public school students in New York City got to come and see the show, many of whom had never been to a show before themselves, seventh and eighth graders. And it was extraordinary. I was lucky enough to be there standing in the back. Um, but then he got COVID and really came within a whisper of dying. And uh, his his wife would would sing to him and talk would talk to him every day. His three kids, they dropped him off to get a, a shot. They thought maybe he had the flu, maybe something. And he was there for months. Um, a lovely man. And um, they tried some experimental medication, and that was what saved him. But one of the nurses sang um, uh, one of the songs from Wicked and sang it to him every day while he was in a coma, while he was in a vent- on a ventilator, while he was not really functioning independently at all. And when he came out of it, finally, and survived, and I mean, I cried reading the story, and I'm not a wimp, I don't cry that easily, but it really tore me apart. And we had him on the Tamron Hall show. Um, they sang it to him and clapped as he was wheeled out of the hospital, you know, by the nurse and into the arms of his wife and kids. Just a normal guy from New Jersey with a family, and he was the costume designer, and he got so sick. They used some uh, experimental treatment from Israel, some plasma, and that was what helped him out. Thank God. So, but um, it has absolutely devastated Broadway. Yeah. It, I mean, I, Broadway. I follow uh, Be An Arts Hero on, on social media. I mean, the, 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 uh, this, this will go around the world, this podcast, but the Australian arts industry alone is worth $111 billion annually economically. Yeah. And yet has received... Right zero support from the government and similarly right. arts industry here. I mean, what do people think happens that the theatre is not just the people you see on stage? What do people think happens 
to all of those people behind the scenes who are now without work. And they're not all celebrities who are in big unions and take away big money. They're the ushers. They're the guys who sell you your program. They're the people who help you when your seats are mixed up and sell you the, the tickets at the gate, you know? Yeah. It's so disturbing. Well, they're saying that uh, our new president, Biden, God willing, is is going to try to help take care of the arts to some extent. Yeah, yeah, which is going to have to happen. I wish the same for you guys. Yeah, right. Well, you know, we can but hope. I mean, I think greater humanity is probably the, the call, right? Um, well, we certainly need we need the, the theatre, you know. We, let's talk about um, some of the people that you knew before they were who they became. People like Andy Cohen, people like Jerry Seinfeld, and people like uh, okay. Tell me your story. Of those who? Oh, yeah. Young Andrew Cohen, we who know him longer call him Andrew. Uh, he was my assistant. First, he started as an intern at CBS this morning. He came in with a big ponytail and he was full of fun. He was the same person he is now. He essentially hasn't changed. He's a kid from St. Louis, came from a well-off family, has a sister and, and always had very good friends. I know a number of his oldest friends who are still good friends. And he was the guy that everybody wanted to be his best friend. Um, so he worked with me and I hope he learned a few things from me. I know I learned a few things from him. And then he went into Bravo and uh, created the Housewives. I'm not a fan. It's just not my kind of thing. But they exploded. And now he's got a, you know, he's got a show on Sirius, which he's, he's just doing so fabulously. And we have, he's, he's great to me still. If I email him, I hear back from him. I love looking at pictures of his little boy. And um, I, I, I will say that, you know, he really is a good, decent person and somebody you'd want to call a friend. You know, so I'm very happy for his success. You know, sometimes you might say, oh, my God, he was my assistant. How did that happen? But for him, he was somebody who I wanted to know the publicists. He wanted to know the stars. And they all adore him. Cher loves him. Madonna loves him. And I'm very happy for him. Yeah. And what about I used to work with Jerry him. Seinfeld? Jerry Seinfeld was um, a young comedian. And I was up visiting my best friend, my college roommate up in Syracuse, New York. And uh, the singer, Carolyn Moss was doing a show up there. Poor Carolyn, nobody kind of really knows about her. But we got there early and we saw the comedian at the beginning and he was knock you on the floor funny. And he was very New York and I'm very New York and his name was Jerry Seinfeld. So um, when I, I was at CBS this morning then and my reporter and anchor, I won't mention his name, said uh, I booked him to come in and he was doing a show called The Seinfeld Chronicles. It was on Wednesday night. And people said, why are we doing this guy? Who is this guy? He'd only been on two or three times. The Today Show hadn't put him on yet. And I said, trust me, trust me on this. This guy is funny. So years later, I was um, in an apartment near his apartment. He has, you know, a floor or so. Um, and Billy Bush, whom I adore, was doing an interview with him for Access. I helped build that relationship. You get to do a lot of things behind the scenes and kind of create relationships with people. And Billy and uh, Seinfeld have been solid since. And uh, anyway, so um, I mentioned to him that I had seen him with Carolyn Moss and he said, yeah, whatever happened to her, you know, but none of us really knew. <laughs> but he I, was amazing. I remember when I saw a piece that he did about why do pajamas have pockets? Uh -huh. It was the funniest thing. I mean, I had never thought, why is there a pocket on your pajamas? What are you going to take to bed with you, right? You're not going to do your rosary. <laughs> what did he say? What was the answer? 
Oh, I can't remember. I was laughing so hard. I mean, my belly fell out. Right. I, just, I was. I, <laughs> I thought he was the. I thought he was so funny, and I. Um, you know, I do comedy. I do storytelling and, and stand up, but more in the storytelling vein. And um, and one of the things that I talk to young comedians about when they're first starting is that you know they're really dirty, they're really filthy, and the women are just filthier than the men now. And and I asked her, why do you tell stories like that? Oh, well, they're funny. I said, but are they really funny? And I show them this piece of Seinfeld and say, look at this guy. He's talking about pajamas and pockets and it's hysterical. Like I use him as an example. Or um, Robin Williams and the, the bit about golf, which is the right. first piece of comedy. I mean, right. look it up everywhere. I love Robin Williams. YouTube. I spent golf. a lot of time with him. Yeah. Right. Oh, how blessed. Yeah, what a great guy. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. He, he really was a sweetheart. Um, I will say about that, you know, I, I listened recently to a podcast with a comedian, a male comedian, and he was talking about poop. And uh, it was with a, it was on WTF, a podcast I love with Mark Marin. Yes. And I just thought, I don't want to hear about poop. So I just turned it off. And I, I will usually just skip the parts I don't care about, but it was just like gross. I don't want to hear this. Yeah. You know, I agree with you, I'm saying. And uh, Seinfeld's wife is lovely. She really does cook for the family every night. They try to sit down and have a meal. He collects the phones at the table. His oldest daughter had gone off to school at Duke, so she was away. But, um, you know, they, they're, they're like, try to be a normal family. And his sister works with his foundation. They send underprivileged kids to college. So that's nice to know. Yeah. I want to go. And Audra McDonald. Uh, exactly. I was just going to say, Aud let's talk about Audra McDonald. Well, there's one of the Broadway people I saw very early on. Um, my mother loved the show Carousel, as do I. So I took her to, um, it was at Lincoln Center to see the show. And there was talk about this one woman, this new woman. Sorry. That's okay. This new young woman. No, uh, yeah. Hi, I'm doing an interview. I have to call you back, okay? There was this new young woman. Sorry, apologies. Um, that everybody talked about how she was, They were. it was colorblind casting. You know, Carousel is set in the, in the you know, years ago in the mid plains, that sort of area. She played the best friend and she had one of the most beautiful solos, but she was black because Audra's black. But in the play, had she had always been played by a white woman. So as soon as Audra opened her mouth, you knew you were looking at history being made. She was so phenomenal. And the only thing I would say is that I wish she had played the lead actress because, um, she was that good. And if they truly were being colorblind, wow, she should have been the lead. But it, it was, she always remembers that I remembered her from that. And it's, that's nice, you know, when you interview somebody who does remember you. If yeah. you were having a group of people over for dinner and had a big enough apartment to seat 10 people, um, who would Ten. you have over of all the people you've met and those you didn't? So let's stick John Lennon yeah. in the head, right? Right. I would want John Lennon at the head of the table. I would have my mother, too, because I miss her so much. Um, Tom Cruise, uh, you know, I know people get on him for his religion. But one of the things about this country is that you can choose to believe what you believe and who you believe. And that's your business. I'm Irish. My family came over here. We were being persecuted for our religion. So I feel it's not my place to judge him or judge anyone else. So there's three. 
I might have Nicole because she's recently started talking about Tom, <laughs> which is interesting to me since they had such a bad falling out. Um, I, I love Tom Brady, who's a quarterback for the Patriots. I know he's a sports guy, but um, 10 is a lot. Maybe some authors. Could I have some authors? I love um, Anna. What's her name? I can see her, her, the name of the book, Anna Pritchard. I can't are you, are you a ask this question because, you know, I am so bad with names that I'm Yeah, not, and I'm oh, pretty I'm good with them. But In the morning, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Um, Clint Eastwood actually flirted with me once, which was a great thrill. So I'd want to bring him back and see if he remembered me. I mean, no. I know he's an old guy, but he's Clint Eastwood, you know. So um, <laughs> I'd have him there. And a couple of my regular friends, not name people, just to fill it out. My friend Phil and my friend Polly. Yeah. yeah. Someone to someone to pour the pour the sparkling water or the wine and somebody to serve the, the food, right? Well, they'd want to get in on the conversation. Phil is and, and Anna Patchett. That's what I'm thinking of. Anne Patchett, the author. I like her very much. Yeah, she's still alive. Yeah. Chris, it's getting late for you there in New York, so so I'm I'm not gonna take up too much more of your time. I wanted to say thank you so much for for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure speaking with you, really. Thank you. lovely stories. Just wonderful. I feel like... I've been very blessed. The problem is that once you tend to hit a certain age, they kind of tend to want to push you out, and I feel as interested and engaged and as able to do things as ever. So hopefully that, you know, long. I'd like to run a long time. Somebody said to me, well, what will you do when you retire? Who wants to retire? Who wants to retire? Do you want to retire? No. What is there to do? I don't golf, you know? Right. <laughs> I'm not a golfer. I'm just I'm I'm going backwards in age, so I'm not ever going to retire. Yeah. Hold oh, me good down. for you. There, you know then. Chris right. Fahey, I hope COVID is over soon, so that I can meet you face to face when I come to New York. The feelings mutual. Maybe we can all go see a play. That'd be wonderful. Or a musical. <laughs> okay. Right. God bless. Thanks, Chris. Thank God you. Bless. Pleasure. You've been listening to Tate Fountain with Ella James. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.